Well, the town of Lexington is famous for being the site of the first armed engagement of the Revolutionary War. On April 19, 1775, just a stone's throw from here, literally, Captain John Parker and his 70 or so militiamen confronted a, a regiment of British regulars on their way to Concord to destroy munitions. There was a tense moment of confrontation. Shots were fired, and when the smoke cleared, eight patriots lie dead or dying on the town green. Now, there's still a lot we don't know about that day, including who fired the first shot. But this past week, archaeologists discovered some artifacts buried deep in the soil that shed some new light on the events of that particular day and the significance of those events. Now, we already know that later on that day, Captain Parker rallied his men and they re-engaged that regiment of soldiers as they were retreating from Concord back to Boston. And they fired shots there. It happened just down the road. It's a battle called Parker's Revenge. It happened uh, just near the Lincoln Line here. Well, last week, archaeologists were searching that particular site with high-tech lasers and metal detectors, and they located some previously undiscovered musket balls and a small copper button buried there in the soil. And the location and the condition of those musket balls suggest that that battle, Parker's Revenge, was fought at very close range. And so it highlights the courage of these soldiers, these ordinary citizens who, having suffered casualties earlier in the day, returned to fight again against this regiment of highly trained soldiers. In the words of one local historian, it's the kind of heroism that cries out to be researched and memorialized. Well, in a similar way, this fall, we are going to dig deep into the soil of history, the Old Testament in particular, and search out the origins of a conflict that began a long time ago, a conflict that is still being waged to this very day, a conflict in which you and I are participants, whether we realize it or not. And in fact, the men and women who lost their lives and were wounded just this past week in Oregon, they're casualties of that conflict. It's the conflict between good and evil. It's been going on for a long time. And it's going to require an act of heroism on someone's part if we're ever going to see victory. Now, we spent the month of September setting up this year-long journey through the Bible that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus. We learned that Jesus is a compelling figure who cannot be ignored. We learned that he came to earth on a mission to seek and to save lost people. And we learned that if, he's, if he is who he says he is, then life comes together or falls apart around him. So whether you're here today as a seeker or a skeptic or a student or a saint, we're inviting you to make this journey with us. As we discover things we might have missed, or misunderstood about Jesus, in order that we might know better who he is and why he came and what we need to do with him. Now, we typically think of looking for Jesus in the New Testament of the Bible, the Gospels and the story and the writings of the early church. But as we're going to find out, there are traces of Jesus all through the Old Testament, some of them buried deep, deep in the soil, tucked away in 
hidden places throughout the scripture and the sands of time. But as we uncover them, week by week, we're going to reveal something new about Jesus, who he is, who he wants to be to us and to our world. So let's begin our journey today by going all the way back to the beginning and look for traces of Jesus in the oldest and perhaps most tragic chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at the first few verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now we could get into a long discussion here about the historicity of this story. Should we read Genesis 3 historically? Should we read it figuratively, literally or figuratively or some measure of both? Along with many conservative Bible scholars, I, I understand this story historically in the sense that there was an Adam and Eve who acted on behalf of the human race in the manner described here in Genesis 3. But however you choose to read this story, it doesn't change the truth of this story, that from the beginning, men and women have made choices that have had history-long consequences, consequences that are still with us today. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God created the heavens and the earth. We learn as well that everything God made was good. In fact, it was very good. As people would say today, it was all good. <laughs> Adam and Eve had everything they needed to, to live happy, healthy, productive lives for themselves, for their children. They enjoyed ease of relationship with one another, with the world around them, and with the God who had made them. But the story, we, we don't even make it to chapter 3 when things begin to fall apart. It begins with one of God's creatures rebelling against his creator. And the creature I'm referring to is the serpent. Now I want you to notice the serpent is not an evil creature. <laughs> Creepy maybe, but not evil. <laughs> We're told that he was crafty, not evil. Remember, everything God made was good. Every creature God made was good. But for reasons we're about to discover, the serpent chooses to work against God and to try to turn human beings against their creator. Now, we're going to learn later on in Scripture that this serpent is being animated by another being, a spirit being, meaning, be, being known to us as Satan, the enemy. Now, many of us believe that there's more to this universe than what we can see, that the universe includes spirit beings, angelic beings, if you will, beings without bodies who also inhabit God's universe and who interact with the affairs of people and history. The scripture tells us that in time past, before time began, God created these spirit beings to, to praise him, to serve him, to enjoy his presence forever. But we learn that one of those spirit beings, known to us as Lucifer, chose not to praise and serve and enjoy God, but chose instead to rebel and rallied some of heaven's hosts to rebel with him. Now, they were cast out from heaven, but they continued to haunt the universe and to resist God and his purposes. And so having failed to turn the hosts of heaven against their creator, Satan now tries to turn human beings against their creator. 
Now I realize, again, some people may have a hard time with the idea of angelic beings and maybe with the idea of Satan in particular. But just try to set that aside for just a minute. My point in bringing all this up is to point out that even Satan was not an evil being originally. Satan, like every being in the universe, was created good to enjoy and glorify God forever. Tragically, he and the angels that followed him chose to rebel against that creative purpose, and they continue to do so. And in reality, that's what evil is. Evil is breaking from God and his purposes. Evil is not a thing. Evil is not a being. Evil is not a force. Evil is a choice. It's the choice to resist God and His goodness. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but let's keep going with the story, beginning at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, just a thought here for those who may have a hard time with the idea of a talking snake. Now, we've seen YouTube clips of talking dogs and cats and birds, so we get that. But a talking snake? The story doesn't require that the snake literally, verbally spoke out loud to the woman. Now, some theologians will speculate that perhaps that thing was, kind of thing was possible before the fall. There's nothing in Scripture to suggest that. I tend to believe that the spirit being animating that serpent simply whispered silently into Eve's imagination, casting doubt on the things that God had said. And my guess is that we understand that. Because my guess is that most of us, at one time or another, have heard that whisper in our heads as well. A voice suggesting that we think or say or do something hurtful, awful. Something so awful that we wonder where such a thought even came from. I think that's what was happening. Now, we could do a whole sermon here on the subject of temptation, but that's really not our focus. So let's keep on going here. Let's turn our attention for a moment to this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's described back in chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what's the deal with this tree? If the Lord hadn't put that darn tree there, none of this might have happened. Why is the tree there? And what's wrong with eating from it? Well, first, why did he put it there? God put that tree in the garden to secure Adam and Eve's freedom. Now, I know that sounds crazy because most people look at this as a prohibition, as a limitation on Adam and Eve. But actually, that tree represents their freedom. Because that tree offered them the choice every day to continue living with God and for God or to go their own way and depart from God. See, without that tree there in the garden, Eden was just a, a beautiful prison, that's all. There was no way out. But every day, 
that tree gave them the opportunity to choose God and his ways. And that same dynamic is at work with, with all the temptations that come our way. We tend to think that God is trying to keep good things from us. No. Every good thing God gave for us to enjoy, work and play and love and laughter and food and music and friendship and sex and money and power and chocolate, all of it. <laughs> he gave it to us to just enjoy to the max. All he asks is that we enjoy it in the way it was designed to be enjoyed so that it brings maximum goodness to us and to those around us. But he will not force his goodness on us. And if we would rather opt out, if we'd rather do life our way and live life without him, he will allow us to do that. We're free anytime. But when we do that, when we opt out, we accept the consequences of that choice. And that leads to this second question about the tree. What was wrong? with eating of the knowledge of good and evil. Is God holding back Adam and Eve? Is he trying to stifle their maturity, keep them from realizing their potential? Some people was, have, have suggested that Adam and Eve made a heroic decision, breaking off the constraints of God to become masters of their own fate. Well, part of the key to understanding what's happening here is that word knowledge. It's not a word for mere mental cognition. It's a word for personal experiential knowledge. Up until this moment, Adam and Eve have only known goodness. They've never experienced evil. They have no knowledge of evil. Think about a goldfish in a bowl. Does the fish know it's wet? Does the fish have knowledge of water? It's all it's ever really known. Take that goldfish and flip it on the living room floor, and it's going to pretty quickly have a knowledge, not just of wet, but of dry. And for a goldfish, dry is just another word for dead. That's the kind of knowledge being described here. Up until this point, Adam and Eve have never known evil. They've never experienced it. And so are they going to be better off? Is humanity going to be better off for them having chosen evil? Think of it this way. For argument's sake, let's say that this tree is called the tree of the knowledge of health and sickness. And let's say you are given the choice. Before taking fruit from that tree, you have only known health. You know what it means to feel good, to have strength, to have your mind and body, everything working the way it's supposed to work. But you decide that that's awfully limiting and one-dimensional. You'd like to have knowledge of sickness as well, you know, for the experience of it. So, now you know what it's like to feel lousy, to not have strength, to have no appetite, to find your body doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. Now you're better off. Some people might say, yes. Yes, I'd rather know than not know, even if it's difficult, you know, for the struggle of it. All right, well, suppose you were to discover that this sickness you've chosen is chronic that it's always going to be with you. And suppose then you learn that this sickness is systemic, that it affects every part of your mind and body. Suppose you learn that this sickness 
is terminal, that it will bring your life to an end. And then suppose you learn that this sickness is hereditary and you will surely pass it on to your children. Now, are you better off for having chosen the knowledge of sickness? There's a reason God didn't want Adam and Eve to have the knowledge of good and evil in that sense of the word. He knew it would ruin everything, and it did. As it turns out, the Bible has a word for this sickness, and it's the word sin. That's not a popular word these days. We don't like to toss it about. It sounds kind of archaic and negative. But sin is just evil made personal. Evil made personal. Sin is choosing to break from God and his ways. Almost every word in the Bible for sin has this idea. Falling away, turning away, missing the mark, falling short, crossing a boundary. And like the sickness we've just described, sin is chronic, it's systemic, it's terminal, and it's hereditary. Are we better for having chosen sin and sickness? I think not. But that's what Adam and Eve chose. And as a result, all these consequences tumbled upon them. Genesis says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Immediately they knew something was wrong. They'd made a terrible mistake. They tried to cover it up. They tried to hide from each other. They tried to hide from God. But he found them. And he explained to them the consequences of their decision. Beginning with the serpent. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Now what we call the curse is simply the litany of consequences that come with Adam and Eve's decision to choose evil. Nothing will work the way it worked before. Everything, every good thing will be tainted by evil. We're told that the descendants of Eve, the human race, will from this point on continue to be assaulted by Satan and his demonic forces, enticing us away from God and his good purposes. In the verses to come, we learn that childbirth will now bring pain as well as joy that the satisfaction of work will be shadowed by stress and strain, that human relationships will be riddled with rivalry and suspicion, that the very earth we've been given to take care of and enjoy will resist our efforts to be tamed, and that ultimately every living thing will die. God says, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Like I said, it may well be the most tragic chapter in the Bible. Well, maybe we better lighten up a little bit. <laughs> Last Sunday, we watched a clip from the film Gravity, outer space movie. 
And this week, maybe because I had that on my brain, I got thinking of uh, another outer space movie and another scene from that movie. And the movie I'm thinking of is Apollo 13. It recounts, of course, the story of that ill-fated mission to the moon back in the 1970s. And the movie tells the story of that mission and how it got off to a fine start, but on the third day, just hours into it, the ground crew instructed the, uh, the, the pilot to turn on the, the, the hydrogen and oxygen stirring fans. And when they did, they heard a loud bang and soon an explosion outside the spacecraft. A spark had triggered that explosion. And moments later, a voice is heard over the radio from the commander, Jim Lovell, speaking those now famous words, Houston, we have a problem. Now, what he actually said was, Houston, we've had a problem. But we like the way Tom Hanks said it, and so that's how we <laughs> tell the story. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. Now, that phrase has caught on. It's found its way into everyday conversation. You, go, you can go to online dictionaries and look up this phrase. We use it anytime we want to report a, a, a serious malfunction that could have disastrous consequences. Houston, we have a problem, we say. When I read this story in Genesis 3, I want to cry out, Earth, we have a problem. We have a major malfunction that could have devastating consequences. Something's happened that threatens this enterprise we call life. We've made a mistake, and it puts everything at risk, and we can't find our way out of it. Now, we don't like to admit we have problems. We're proud people. We're independent people. We're self-sufficient people, or we like to think so. But until we admit we have a problem, until we face the fact that we are all of us in trouble, we can never be helped. Now, we spent considerable time on this today because I want us to understand the problem of evil, which has reared its ugly head in our world again this week. One of the, one of the administrators of the community college there in Oregon described what happened as carnage in Eden. Those were her words. As we pointed out last week, neither science nor philosophy can explain the origin of evil or offer any kind of solution to the problem of evil. But the scripture speaks to it here. What is evil? Where did it come from? Why do people do such things? The Bible tells us what evil is. It is a choice. Evil is not a thing. Evil is not a being. Evil is not a force. Evil is a choice. It's choosing to break with God and his ways. It wasn't evil that slithered into the garden that day. It was a creature rebelling against its creator. It wasn't evil that walked onto the campus of Umpqua Community College this past week. It was a person, a person who chose to kill, and to kill in particular people who professed faith in God. It's not evil that's wreaking havoc in our world, causing governments to exploit their own people, 
turning one tribe or race or sect against another tribe or race or sect to try to annihilate them. It's people who are doing those things. Men and women, like you and me, like Adam and Eve, choosing to do things our way instead of God's way. Evil is not the problem. People are the problem. We are the problem. Now, I know, I know most of us would say, but I've never done those kinds of horrific things, and, and we like to think we never would. But the simple truth is that we choose evil every day. We, we choose greed instead of contentment. We choose lies instead of the truth. We choose lust instead of love. We choose to serve our own interests instead of serving someone else's interests. We have chosen to create a culture that celebrates, glorifies violence. We, we celebrate villains rather than heroes. We entertain ourselves with stories of serial killers and sexual predators and adulterous spouses and ruthless mobsters. That's what we do for entertainment. What's wrong with us? Evil is not out there somewhere. Evil is in here. Souls and Ibsen famously said, the line between good and evil passes not through states, nor through classes, nor through political parties, but through every human heart. Years ago, a newspaper published an editorial with the title, What's Wrong with the World? G.K. Chesterton, a Christian thinker, wrote a letter to the editor in response. Dear sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. We are the problem. This is pretty heavy stuff, I know, and it's hard to preach and it's hard to hear, but until we admit we have a problem, we can't be helped. And the good news for Apollo 13 is that Houston had a solution. The very moment things fell apart, mission control sprang into action and came up with a plan that would ultimately save those three astronauts and bring them home safely. And there's good news for us too. And I know you've waited a long time this morning to hear it. <laughs> the good news is that the very moment disaster happened in the Garden of Eden, God was already at work had already set in place, a, a, set in motion a plan that would one day lead to our rescue. Because hidden in this tragic chapter of the Bible, slipped in between the litany of curses, is a trace of promise. Now, it's a small promise in comparison to all the doom and gloom, but it's enough of a promise to give us hope found in chapter 3, verse 15. It's, it's actually hidden, tucked right into the curse pronounced on the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In these verses, the Lord predicts that the offspring of the serpent, Satan, will continue to wage war against God and his purposes. But he also promises that the offspring of the woman will strike a fatal blow against Satan. Now, theologians call this the proto-evangelium, 
theologians love Latin. It means the first good news. I like to call it the first Noel. Now, I know it seems like Christmas is a ways off, but I heard white Christmas in the store yesterday. <laughs> I'm not ready for Christmas or white, but it's coming, so we might as well run with it. Noel means an announcement of Christ's birth. And the first announcement of Christ's birth was not the one given to certain shepherds abiding in the field. The first Noel was not the one given nine months earlier to a young maiden in Nazareth. The first Noel was not the one given 700 years before that to the people of Isaiah's day who heard, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. The first Noel wasn't given centuries before that to the Hebrews when they put blood on the sides and top of their doorposts in the shape of a cross. The first Noel was not the one given millennia before that to Abraham when God promised, I will provide the lamb for a sacrifice. The first Noel, the first announcement of Christ's birth was given to the very first man and woman at the very dawn of history. Right here in the very first pages of the Bible, before the dust has even settled from, from the human fall, God has already set in motion a rescue mission. Like a gardener pressing a bulb deep into September's soil, God plants a seed that thousands of years later will burst forth as Jesus of Nazareth who comes to save the world. It's enough to give us hope. His name will be Jesus. It means one who saves. And this this one will be born, interestingly, to a woman, a woman who chooses to say yes to the purposes of God. Now, as we've been told, the enemy is not going to sit idly by and watch this rescue mission succeed. And so from the moment that child is born, Satan strikes out at him. He sends Herod's soldiers to kill all the newborn children in Bethlehem. When a child is grown and ready to begin his public ministry, Satan is there right from the beginning, tempting Jesus to, to forsake his mission and save himself. When, when he fails to seduce Jesus away from his plan, he tries instead to kill Jesus. He prompts an angry mob to try to throw him off a cliff. He stirs up envy in the heart of religious leaders who conspire to get rid of him. He prompts one of Jesus' own followers to betray him. He inflames the bloodthirst of common people. He corrupts a Roman governor's sense of justice. And for a few hours on a dark hill outside Jerusalem, it looks as though the enemy has gotten the best of him, that the woman's offspring breathes his last and is laid to rest in a tomb. It seems as though the serpent has won the day. But on the third day, the offspring of the woman throws off the dust of death, bursts forth from the tomb, and raises a heel to crush the serpent's head once and for all. That is the promise tucked away here at the very beginning of human history, at the very beginning of the Bible. 
We find traces of it right here in the soil of Eden. It's no bigger than a musket ball, but it is lethal when it finds its mark. It's a story that cries out to be researched and memorialized. It's the story of a Savior born to rescue us from the mess we've made of our lives in the world. Each week in this series, you're going to be discovering some new dimension of Jesus' person and work. And today, it's the most important. He is Savior. He's the one who rescues us from the mess we make of our own lives and of the world that He's given us. Well, that's a lot of heavy lifting today. Crash course in theology, philosophy, and space travel. In 30 minutes, okay? You've done well. What can we take home with us? What does this mean personally and practically for us? Well, briefly, three things at least. First, it teaches us that the Bible is all about Jesus. From the opening chapters of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation, it is all about Jesus. I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you think about it. This book was written by 40 different authors over a period of thousands of years in at least three different languages coming out of all kinds of cultures. And yet, it tells one story. The story of, of Jesus. When Moses or whoever put these words to papyri a long time ago, he could have had no idea the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. But thousands of years later, a child was born to a woman who would save the world. The second thing this story does is it helps us to understand the human predicament. We find ourselves in a cosmic conflict between good and evil. We learn that there is, in fact, a malign spirit at work in the world trying to seduce us away from God and His ways, but ultimately, evil is a choice, a choice that people make, that you and I make every day, to do life with God and for God, or by ourselves and for ourselves. God won't force His ways on anyone, but when we choose otherwise, we accept the consequences. The third and most important truth this story offers us is hope. It tells us that help is not only on the way, it has already come. The Savior promised long ago has come. His name is Jesus, and He is able to rescue us from the mess we've made. He's able to forgive us for our sins. He's able to change us from the inside out so we choose more wisely. And He is able to put right all that has gone wrong with this world. Now, right now, the war is still being waged, and sometimes we are caught in its crossfire, but the day will come when the serpent's head will be crushed, and this world and you and I will become all that God intended it to be from the very beginning. Now, in just a moment, just a moment, we're going to gather around the communion table, which speaks to us of the life and death, resurrection and coming again of Jesus. If you have never looked towards heaven and said, Jesus, I have a problem. Or if you haven't done that in a long time, this would be a great opportunity. The opportunity today to receive the forgiveness of your sins, the promise of eternal life, and the hope of a, of a better day yet to come. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit for giving us the scriptures, 
in all its richness and complexity and truth and beauty. The scripture has found us today in our own, our own world, our own time, our own lives and hearts. We're thankful, Lord, that we find forgiveness for all that we have done personally, for the ways we have brought harm to ourselves and to those we love and even to the wider world in which we live. We grieve for the, the heartache of this world and those who are suffering the effects of evil. And so, having received forgiveness, Father, we are inviting you to do something new and good in our hearts, to give us grace to choose more wisely and to be your people in this world. Meet us here in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.